The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. The financial industry's approach is just to say, look, the risk is too great. We're just going to categorically shut it down. And if I'm being completely honest, like I'm not 100% sure what the legal argument is for the platforms that don't just shut it down. When we're talking about like just a straight up designated entity and it's using their platform. I think the risk, legal risk averseness of it is that they should shut it down. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 26th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information ecosystem. We'll be talking about the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and how, like everything, it raises content moderation issues. When the Taliban seized power following the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan this month, major platforms like Facebook and Twitter faced a quandary. What should they do with accounts and content belonging to the fundamentalist insurgency that was suddenly running a country? Should they treat the Taliban as the Afghan government and let them post? Or should they remove Taliban content under U.S. sanctions law? If you're coming at this from the tech space, you may have been watching the conversation of recent weeks about how this has raised new and difficult issues for platforms thrust into the center of geopolitics by questions of what to do about Taliban accounts. But how new are these problems, really? This week, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Scott Anderson, a senior editor at Lawfare and a fellow at the Brookings Institution, who you might have heard on some other Lawfare podcasts about Afghanistan in recent weeks. He walked us through the problems of recognition and sanctions law the platforms are now running into, and we debated whether or not the platforms are navigating uncharted territory, or whether they're dealing with the same problems that other institutions, like banks, have long dealt with. It's the Lawfare podcast, August 26th, why the Taliban can't use Facebook. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to be talking about the different sanctions on the Afghan Taliban and how this relates to, well, content moderation, because, and, and I don't mean to be flippant about this, but as I want to say, everything is a content moderation issue these days, and pretty much every geopolitical crisis is going to raise issues for tech companies, both in how they respond, but also how they facilitate the events and their role in events as it plays out. And while I think sometimes the online discourse tends to overemphasize the online aspects of any conflict. It's not a peripheral issue here. There's real, very real issues for platforms in how this plays out. And whether the Taliban has access to social media does fundamentally affect their legitimacy, their ability to communicate with the Afghan population and the world and spread their propaganda or, or plan their next steps. But I think we should start by situating our readers a bit more broadly beyond the online environment. So can you give our readers a quick overview of where things stand right now in Afghanistan from a governance perspective? So is the Taliban fully running the country at this point? Is it right to call them the government of Afghanistan? So that is a very difficult question and one that the United States and many other members of the international community are wrestling with right now. 
the idea of what to call the Taliban isn't a new question. This is something that a lot of countries wrestled with throughout the 1990s during the last period that the Taliban was kind of in control of a good part of the territory of, of Afghanistan. Uh, and that's kind of resurrected itself now. And, and it gets down to something that international lawyers refer to as recognition, which is the kind of formal acknowledgement that a given regime overseas is the government of a state. And that often means at a formal level that it can speak for that state in international affairs. It means that it can enter into treaties for that state. It means that it can send diplomats to man the embassies of that state overseas. It means that that government can manage and claim ownership over the foreign assets of that state, something that's very relevant in the debate regarding Afghanistan, given that its foreign currency reserves are currently frozen in in U.S. Federal Reserve banks and uh, and other financial institutions, so it's a really foundational and fundamental legal question that the United States and nor any other member of the international community has yet addressed in regard to Afghanistan. For all intents and purposes, it seems like the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan—that's the government that has been in place and internet was internationally recognized the last twenty years since. The U.S.-led invasion in 2001 seems like it's gone away. Um, the Taliban certainly seems to have um, military control of a good part of the country and of the capital city of Kabul. They have declared their intent to reestablish the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. That was the name of the pseudo-state, pseudo-government that they ran back in the 1990s before the U.S. invasion. They have taken steps among their various factions uh, and including a couple other prominent Afghans like former President Hamid Karzai to sit down in Kabul really as we as we record this they're they're discussing well what is this new government going to look like but generally states meaning other states or the broader national community want to see certain hallmarks before they sign on to recognize a new regime like this, particularly one that's come to power through force of arms as the new government. The main requirement is they want them to see that they have effective control. And that basically means that they are likely to be permanent, that they have a degree of acquiescence from the public, that they are actually able to govern and do the things that you expect of a government of a state. It's a, it's a fact-specific and fairly flexible standard that states apply. And then on top of that, states often put conditions on recognition. They say, well, you need to abide by human rights. You need to respect your treaty commitments. You need to embrace some sort of representative or democratic form of governance. And we've seen the United States and other governments hint at that in the context of the Taliban, which are requirements the Taliban is not going to meet anytime soon, although maybe they'll They'll pay lip service to them, as we've kind of seen the last few days. So that's that's a very long-winded uh, way of explaining. It, it's not clear that the Af- state of Afghanistan actually has a government right now. I would get, I would say that the probably the consensus conclusion is that they do not. So the Taliban takeover has raised questions for social media and internet companies in a number of different ways. On the one hand, it seems like some companies that weren't previously blocking content from the Taliban now are. The Washington Post reported recently that a number of websites run by the group suddenly went dark as of a few days ago. On the other hand, some websites like you know Facebook that did limit the Taliban's access to the web are now facing this issue of what do you do when an insurgent group you blocked on your platform is now de facto running a country. <laughs> and so a lot of these companies block Taliban access as a, a matter of policy pointing to U.S. law. We'll go more into the details in a moment, but just on a high level, can you explain what the legal architecture is that might encourage you if you're in the general counsel's office at one of these companies to kind of institute that blocking to cut off Taliban access to your platform? 
Sure. I mean, this actually relates to kind of a, a separate set of questions than recognition or authority issues regarding, you know, who is the government of Afghanistan. That's one set of questions that can inform a company that may be determining, okay, well, who should we hand the keys over for this official Afghanistan you know, Ministry of Foreign Affairs Twitter account or something like that. Uh, it can affect decisions like that that are part of the equation. But in terms of actually cutting the Taliban off from platforms, that actually comes from another area of law, and that's that's the issue of sanctions. Because the Taliban has been the subject of both international sanctions by the UN Security Council and bilateral sanctions by the United States and a number of other countries, Warren's mentioned, since the late 1990s, since after the 1998 embassy bombings. And those sanctions are are pretty draconian. They they install pretty strict limits that say you're not really supposed to be having any economic or in-kind interactions with the Taliban. The whole design of these sanctions is to kind of cut off economic support for the Taliban. And so on account of that, when you are providing a service to the Taliban as a company, you are facing arguments that, in fact, well, yeah, you are giving an in-kind service. You're giving something of value to the Taliban, and that can constitute material support for terrorism in some cases, although we can get into some of the legal nuances there because that doesn't clearly apply here as a technical matter. But similar similar legal prohibitions that say, hey, you are providing uh, you know, assistance in violation of federally established sanctions or otherwise doing things that carry with them criminal penalties or civil penalties as a corporation. And for that reason, companies are facing legal risk. They're facing those potential sanctions that are involved. And they say, okay, well, we need to cut these off because otherwise the federal government could come to us or potentially foreign governments and penalize us for doing something that they think is within the scope of the statute to say, we're, we're essentially providing this terrorist group with support. There's another angle of this that's also been of increasing concern, I think, for social media platforms the last few years is that there's actually a civil liability component to this. U.S. law has a very broadly construed civil liability provision related to the acts of international terrorism, which can include things that look like support for terrorism, terrorist groups in various regards. And so if a U.S. national were injured in a terrorist attack and a credible case could be made that a given social media platform was somehow involved by the terrorist groups in planning for that attack, whether as a recruitment method or as uh, you know a means of communication, means of coordination, something like that, they might face claims of civil liability, potentially very large, multi-million dollar, tens of million dollars claims for civil liability for the damages arising from those acts of terrorism. Not many of those lawsuits have succeeded thus far, to my knowledge. I'm not sure if any of them have actually gotten to the point where there's been damages against the tech company, but they're credible enough that they've been litigated out up to, to the appellate court level, and in many cases actually settled. Uh, and on the financial services side, which has been dealing with this problem a little bit longer, in a number of cases have been settled and, ha and have gotten closer to those sorts of negative judgments, that it's a real risk. And so that's another set of incentives here saying that even if the federal government says we're not going to penalize you, private plaintiffs might. And so the general counsel's office have to think about that when they're deciding what level of exposure they're willing to tolerate by letting their platform by, be used by groups that everyone acknowledges has ties to terrorism. 
Yeah, that's great. Quinta asked you to answer that like a general counsel, and you you did, um, with the very risk-averse option of even though none of these lawsuits have been uh, successful yet, when you're sitting in a platform, obviously your incentives are very much one way as opposed to the other, and and we'll talk a bit about that later in terms of the ramifications that that has for freedom of speech and, and sort of the incentives more broadly here. But I think before we go any further, it's worth sort of clarifying a little bit more the legal framework and which groups and which lists we're talking about, because I I think this was a source of a lot of the confusion in talking about this when this first started. So there are actually two groups and two lists, as far as I understand it, that are relevant to this conversation. There's the Pakistani Taliban, which is a US-designated foreign terrorist organization. And then there's the Afghan Taliban, which is what we're talking about today, obviously. And they're not on that FTO list, but they're on another list, um, which is the specially designated global terrorist list. And so would you mind sort of unpacking for us the difference between the two lists, one why one group might be listed on one and not the other, and what the different sort of ramifications or consequences of being listed on either of those lists are? Sure. It, it is a really, really complicated question. And I'm not surprised that there's confusion around this. I think there's, there's kind of constant confusion around those two reg- legal regimes and a number of related regimes that also exist in this space. But you have to kind of go into history to understand how they relate to each other, because it's actually really kind of a, a matter of, of path-dependent historical development. The FTO, Foreign Terrorist Organization, that's the acronym FTO, regime, was established in the 1990s as part of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, a statute that any law student is is familiar with because it did all sorts of things through all sorts of corners of the law. But this is one kind of very specific corner where it set up this regime that Congress legislated out saying essentially the State Department can designate certain foreign organizations that are engaged in terrorist activity that threaten the United States, those three requirements there, and put them on this FTO list. And once they get put on that FTO list, it triggers a bunch of legal consequences for them. It says that they are essentially just sanctioned. Uh, you know, their assets are frozen. It becomes illegal for anybody to deal with them economically within the United States. You can face penalties for doing that. Uh, any assets of theirs that comes into the jurisdiction of the United States are supposed to be frozen. And then also importantly, is that you can be prosecuted for providing them with material support. That's one of the three, four, four material support prosecution laws. I think that's two, 18 USC 2339, capital letter B, if I'm recalling my, my sequencing correctly. And it's kind of a, a presumption where they say, once you're on this list, it's illegal to provide this group support. You don't have to know that they're a terrorist group. You don't have to know that they're involved in terrorism. It becomes a much stricter form of liability for doing that. So after the 9-11 attacks, the George W. Bush administration was in a position where they said, well, we really want to be able to apply the sanctions part of this, at least, meaning the part that freezes assets, way more broadly, because we know terrorists are funded by networks, and networks are flexible, they are adaptive, they move quickly. And they're not always easily to identify, well, this person is a member of this group and therefore falls under this FTO designation where it has to be a foreign organization. So they used another statute, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which is essentially a very broad delegation of authority from Congress to the president 
allowing the president to regulate all sorts of foreign economic activity, any sort of economic activity with some sort of foreign nexus, to say we're establishing this separate regime, the SDGT or Specially Designated Global Terrorist Regime, that basically says if you are a foreign entity, meaning a person or an organization, there are individuals that's an under this, who is engaged in terrorist activity that might threaten the United States or its economy, uh, so slightly broader definition there. Uh, and this is where it, it gets more important. Or if you happen to be an entity that is acting on behalf of any entity like that, or that provides any material support for any entity like that, you can be subject to this designation. So it creates this kind of daisy chain effect where not just a terrorist group is subject to designation, but any entity that supports that terrorist group is subject to designation. And then any, any entity that supports those entities that subject to designation, it kind of echoes out from there. Very effective method of shutting down broad networks of support. And because it was established under IEPA, the International Words Economic Powers Act, it's administered almost entirely by the executive branch. Executive branch doesn't have to go back to Congress to amend or update the statutory regime. And so it becomes this much more flexible tool for extending the sanctions component of this to a much broader range of entities involved with terrorism. So what happens? Um, the FDO regime is still used. Uh, it's mostly distinctive because of the criminal prosecution of, of material support. It also carries a lot more, for reasons that frankly aren't entirely clear to me either, a lot more moral sanction. I think because it is a much more deliberative process, it's used much more rarely. It really is. You're on there with a real list of baddies of organizations that are engaged in international terrorism. But it's it still seems sort of limited use. The State Department's designated about 72, 74 FTOs. I believe at this point, the count is somewhere around there. SDGT regime, meanwhile, has been used thousands of times. Uh, I did a quick search before we signed on here. It looked like there were at least 8,000 SDGTs designated uh, on the SDN list. The State Department itself, which has kind of a sub, sub sort of primary authority under the SDGT regime, um, itself has designated 351 SG SDGTs compared to just the 74 FTOs. And then perhaps the most tellingly is that every single FTO designated by that regime is also co-designated as an SDGT as kind of a belt and suspenders method of showing, yeah, in fact, the full range of economic sanctions that we can apply against you both those defined by Congress and the FTO regime, which are pretty broad, and those defined by the executive branch in the SDGT regime, which are much more broad and flexible and subject to amendment by the executive branch, these all apply to these entities. So the long and short of it is those are the two different regimes. The SDGT regime is used much more often, much more flexibly, much more broadly, but the FTO regime still carries some sort of moral weight. It gets a lot more attention, and then it has that added hook of criminal prosecution for material support. You can still be criminal pros criminally prosecuted for violating sanctions too under the SDGT regime, but the material support criminal prohibition is a little stricter, a little more severe penalty, has a as there's extraterritorial element to it about how it can be used. And so it provides a little bit more of a of an added sanction there. So I think this distinction is is actually one that seemed to cause a lot of confusion for platforms and even for some journalists who write about technology in the wake of the Taliban's takeover. Um, and at times honestly it seemed that even the platforms weren't clear on what their treatment of the Taliban was or what the basis of that treatment was. Uh, there are ambiguous statements that sometimes seem to conflate the Afghan Taliban with a Pakistani Taliban, which is a different organization sanctioned differently. And I think this is important to note here because while the platforms don't exclusively rely on U.S. government lists, they do try to reference them often to, you know, kind of clothe their choices and the legitimacy of being the result of, of government decision making. So Facebook, for example, 
seems to generally treat both the FTO and the SDGT lists as the basis for its rules and has long been the Afghan Taliban. Twitter uh, is not banning the Taliban as a group, but will said it will ban any individual tweets that breach its rules, so graphic content or inciting violence. Uh, YouTube seems to have settled on the position that it had always banned the Taliban, which seems right, except that the company uh, initially didn't seem to be clear on why they banned them and told Reuters that it relies on governments to define FTOs to guide the site's enforcement of its rules against violent criminal groups. So I think that it's fair to say there's a lot of confusion. I do think one of the reasons we wanted to ask you on was to try to draw out the similarities and differences between what social media platforms are trying to do here and what other industries are doing. You know, when we talk about content moderation on the internet, I think we often try to talk about how platforms are handling things as this kind of exceptional industry that's divorced from what other institutions are or aren't doing. But as you and I discussed um, on Twitter, many institutions are faced with the question of how to treat the Taliban both before they took power and now. So what have other institutions like banks, for example, or anything else that comes to mind been doing in connection with the Taliban in light of this month's events? That's a great question. And it's really something that the financial industry has wrestled with more than anything else, because the sanctions component of it, economic sanctions of both the FDO and the SDGT regime is really the meat and potatoes of the regime, I would say. It's the part that comes up the most as the most impact. Material support for terrorism prosecution gets a lot of attention, but the sanctions is actually the part that I think does a lot of the work of these sorts of designations. And it's set the regime is set up, the legal regime, in, in a very specific way to allocate legal risk in a very specific way, and that is to put it on the company. All the Treasury Department does that, that maintains these lists, uh, and it's worth noting FTOs, SDGTs, and you know, dozens of other sanctions regimes established under different statutory authorities are all just kind of glommed together on one list called the Specially Designated Nationals List, SDN List, uh, which you yourself can go look at if you want at treasury.gov slash SDN. All the Treasury Department does is publish this list and they just put it on the internet. And that's it. They provided a couple of different file types. There's a text version, Excel version, a couple other things for databases. And that's it. And they update it pretty regularly because, again, the SDGT regime, other sanctions regime used all the time. New entities are popping up there most days. It then falls on the financial industry particularly, but also, frankly, just about any other type of business to say, okay, well, we actually have an obligation to implement this list or else we are going to face potentially legal penalties as a result of this. If we are found to have knowingly or negligently or recklessly given money to one of these entities, then we're really in trouble. We're going to face criminal or civil penalties potentially. And so most major financial institutions over the last, you know, at least 20 years, probably a little bit longer where these regimes have become more and more common, they have essentially set up very carefully structured in consultation with a number of law firms and a variety of special consulting groups that does sanctions compliance, where essentially every major financial transaction, certainly major ones, uh, often relatively smaller financial transactions as well, gets automatically put through a series of screens that are then evaluated for tripping any of these sanctions regimes, along with a bunch of other legal requirements that are involved here, like Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, things like that. And these sorts of sanctions and other compliance issues 
are a huge part of the financial industry's business now. Lots and lots and lots of law firms make a lot and lot of money off of major financial institutions by helping them navigate these obligations, these burdens. But it's part of what makes the sanctions regime so effective because by putting the burden on the financial institutions, it is decentralized. The federal government now doesn't have to go down and track all of these people. The burden gets shifted onto the individual financial institutions to then do that. In theory, this obligation is not limited to financial institutions, right? Like everybody's subject to these sanctions. I can't go, you know, sell or buy something from a member of the Taliban more than any more than you know Bank of America can legally. But that just doesn't come up for a lot of other industries with the regularity and frequency that the financial industry regime faces it in regards to these types of terrorism sanctions or other international sanctions. Other industries, you know, may face some of these issues at, at quite a systemic level and have their own compliance issues. So like airlines, I know, have a, a pretty rigorous compliance regime in part because they also have, you know, fly lists and a bunch of other things to reconcile with. But financial industry has really, really been the tip of the spear because they're one of the very few industries of truly transnational corporations that's likely to encounter the subjects of these sorts of sanctions. So... As Quinta said, there's this element of tech discourse that tends to talk about what platforms do or the questions that they're thinking about in any situation as, you know, unprecedented and exceptional and reinventing the wheel and having to build governance institutions from the ground up. But then you and Quinta were having this argument about whether it really is that unprecedented or whether it's just, you know, platforms having to fall in behind these kinds of questions that other institutions have been dealing with for ages and not really raising any you know, special or really unique issues. But I think there is something that feels a bit different about speech. And I think, you know, there is this general conception that speech is somehow special and different. And I think, you know, depriving groups or governments of funds is a pretty common tool. And so maybe doesn't raise such existential or difficult normative questions as perhaps censorship does, or censorship is a cultural hot point. And there feels like there's this difference between cutting off funds that might be used to purchase, you know, weapons that could be used to kill civilians or allowing groups to speak. And there's a good argument to be made. And in, in, in some circumstances, I myself have made it that, you know, taking down the speech of state actors should only be done in the rarest of circumstances because there's a public interest in knowing what these influential actors are saying and thinking. And so understanding how the Taliban is positioning itself has some sort of value. Obviously, that doesn't apply when it, you know, steps over into like incitement to violence or graphic content or overt propaganda. But there is some sort of virtue or benefit in knowing somewhat what they're thinking or the message that they want to send out. So I'm wondering if you can maybe what your reaction to that is and whether you see a distinction between, you know, the decisions that financial institutions are having to make and the decisions that platforms are having to make right now. So there are obviously kind of like fact-based distinctions we can make and, and slightly different legal regimes, but but I, I think there's actually more less difference than than even that description you just you just gave may suggest, because essentially what I think you're getting at with the idea of speech here is that there is a public interest in the service that platforms provide in being able to facilitate whatever the given sanctioned entity may be trying to do. So if it's the Taliban government, if they're trying to advertise and let people know about public services they're providing, even if they may also in the next breath support terrorism or do something else uh, nefarious, there's still some value of saying, well, they are a multi-functional, multi-use entity, and we need to support or at least facilitate some of the legitimate things they're going to do. We have a public interest in that. That's very true, though, of of almost the 
the entire universe of kind of sanctioned entities, a lot of them at least, who in the financial context are the funds that they use to pay for social programs if they happen to be an entity that has social programs in addition to acts of terrorism. So Hamas might fit in this category or for governance services, if they effectively, you know, administer a particular territory. So the Islamic state during its kind of heyday was like this, where it basically ran a good part of Syria and Iraq, or, you know, just to take an example from Afghanistan, you know, right now the United States has frozen a vast majority, I think all of the Afghan funds that were in U.S. banks, including its central bank reserves and, and foreign asset reserves, a lot of these are money that's used to do things like pay for Afghan civil servants or pay for Afghan civil services to their citizens, which some of which are, are pretty essential and, and life-preserving. But the sanctions regime draws kind of a bright line and says, you know, in fact, you are need to cut this off because all these resources, all these funds are fungible, and that by allowing them access to these funds to this one good purpose, perhaps, you're also facilitating them to do lots of things for other purposes. And you're making it cheaper to, for them to do that good purpose, and therefore they're able to shift other resources to the more nefarious purposes. This is actually the topic of a Supreme Court case in 2010, the Humanitarian Law Project v. Holder. And the Supreme Court basically came down and said, look, in that case, the the organization challenging was then there an FTO designation uh, or a restriction under an FTO designation was going to certain designated FTOs, specifically, I think it was the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka and the PUK Kurdish group in Turkey, and saying, we, we want to educate these groups on the law of armed conflict and humanitarian law. We want to tell them how not to hurt civilians in their armed conflict that they're pursuing and encourage them to do so, not to do so. How could this possibly be something that the U.S. government wants to prohibit? And it says that this is against sanctions. It doesn't this raise First Amendment rights and other rights for the public. And, and the way the Supreme Court came down, they said, look, Congress and the executive branch together have made this judgment to say that there are no such exceptions for this group because every dollar you give to facilitating a legitimate activity they may do is another dollar you free up for them to pursue their illegitimate activities. And that's the judgment of the political branches in this case. So I see your point. Like Certainly, there are some novel questions posed by the speech role that platform plays, but I'm just not sure that they're any more integral or really that different from the role the financial industry and lots of other industries already play for regimes and organizations that that have these sorts of legitimate and illegitimate purposes wrapped together. And, and that's been true throughout the, almost the whole history of these sanctions regimes for a lot of these groups. Um, so, so in that sense, I'm not sure it really is a novel question. So let me push on some other ways that I think that might make the power that these platforms exercise different from a bank. And then you can, you can tell me why you think that I'm wrong. Um, so Part of it is that on the one hand, it does seem to me like financial transactions might be a lot more black and white, like either money is being transferred or it's not, you know, it's in a bank account or it's not. Whereas if a platform is evaluating speech, there are inevitably a lot of gray lines and qualitative judgments, which is actually more or less why the Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project decision was so controversial when it comes to, you know, the sort of the overlap of speech and what constitutes support for these organizations in a way that is concerning. So that's one thing. And another thing that I'm sort of curious for your thoughts on is whether 
this has to do, or that the tensions that Evelyn and I are picking up on have to do with the fact that major technology platforms are sort of in an earlier stage in their role here than banks are, where, as you said, banks, there's kind of a whole support architecture for compliance with these systems. There are armies and armies of lawyers. And platforms, on the other hand, are kind of in the stage that they've always been in, which is building the plane as they're flying it. And so there's a lot more ambiguity. There's a lot more sort of making snap decisions. There's a lot more, wait, what was our policy on the Taliban again? I'm curious what you think about that and whether I'm exaggerating the extent to which there is an architecture for banks or whether part of what we're seeing is that the platforms are sort of rushing to get up to where the banks are now and that earlier on in these legal regimes, banks face similar problems. Yeah, I, I think I think you you kind of preempted my answer with with your last last question there, but I'll I'll note just to go back to your your point about the ambiguity. You know, I would actually argue I think platforms have it easier in regards to that speech is a lot less ambiguous as to whether something is legitimate or illegitimate. To, to, if that's the line we're drawing, you know, some of that sanctions are intended and we accept as valid to prohibit or not prohibit. Because financial industries, they're just dealing with dollar amounts. They don't know what these transfers are going towards. That's part of the reason why you end up with just complete freezes on accounts, because you don't really know for what purpose any given transfer is being used. Uh, That's part of the logic of the Manhattan Law Project case is to say, like, you don't know what any of this funds is being used. And even if you free up $1, give them $1 discount on a legitimate purpose, that just means there's one more dollar they're going to be able to shove towards an illegitimate purpose potentially. And that risk, Congress and the executive branch who set up these legal regimes have determined it's substantial enough and and the court's not going to reverse that logic. So I'm not sure that's true. Whereas in a platform case, at least you get to see the speech in a lot of cases, a little more complicated when we're talking about users uh, and like, you know, account access, I suppose, than actual substantive content. But on the substantive content side, at least you kind of get to see the speech or at least have the capacity to see the speech before you have to pass judgment on it. Or at least after the fact, relatively short term after the fact, probably, because uh, if it's already online. But I think you really, in your question, got to the real difference here. And that's just a matter of the evolution of these industries. These support systems, these law firms, the other group that do this for the financial industry, just to be clear, they are not publicly subsidized. <laughs> these are not, you know, nor did they uh, arise from the earth as a gift from God uh, to support the financial industries in addressing these legal obligations. They're there because the financial industry paid a lot of money to develop them over many, many years. And I think that is what you are starting to see when you see these social media platforms and a variety of other technical companies that are facing similar challenges here where they are transnational. All of a sudden, these sanctions issues are very real for them. They're developing slowly this legal support and they're tapping into the pre-existing network that the financial industry has already subsidized the creation of in that you now have lots of law firms with expertise in the space. I mean, you talk to lawyers who work in this issue space, like they get a lot of clients or kind of emerging tech clients that raise these sorts of issues, whether it's social media, often you have cryptocurrency raises a lot of these questions. Um, you can have a variety of financial services app that raises a lot of these questions. Another classic example from a few years ago, the big deal is when you saw lots of companies developing new ways to trade and provide access to cellular minutes and cellular phone services and also wireless internet services because people were using the transfer of minutes and access to the internet as a kind of currency and using it to launder money in part for terrorist 
terrorist organizations, alongside criminal organizations. At least that was the suspicion. And they also suddenly had to deal with sanctions compliance. So it's certainly a painful adaptation, I think, for these companies. And again, our public policy really does deliberately put the burden on them. And so, you know, I, I have all the sympathy in the world for that. Uh, and it's a tricky set of questions to wrestle with that that is not without legal risk. But it's, I don't think it's fundamentally different from something a lot of other industries have had to do, uh, at least at its kind of broad, broad character. So I think this is fantastic because I really disagree with a number of the things that you just said. Uh, and I think it's a great <laughs> illustration of this idea of when you're fil- familiar with a particular area, you tend to see the complexities um, that you don't necessarily see from the outside. And I think I disagree with two points in particular that you just made. The first about the less ambiguous nature of the decisions that platforms have to make and whether they're more black and white and second, whether they're more transparent. Um, so on the first point, you know, to me, for as a, as a simple outsider to the financial world, it's like surely financial transactions are much more black and white. Like is money being transferred? Is it in a bank account? Which, you know, you've talked about the fungibility, which is obviously a, a much more complicated issue and I think a really great point. But but for platforms, uh, when they're evaluating speech, I feel like there's a lot more grey lines and qualitative judgments than there are around funds. So, you know, does this constitute praise and support or is it just sort of raising awareness? Is it condemning, documenting, condoning the behaviour? Is it human rights evidence or is it propaganda? When a bystander documents something, and, and, and is showing the actions of a sanctioned group, should that come down? Uh, and I think, you know, I, th- I suppose you, you probably get my my drift here. I think that there's sort of all of these um, really difficult gray areas where platforms are having to make judgments about the public value of certain speech um, that casts them in a more sort of deciding role than perhaps banks are when they have to evaluate certain decisions. And maybe you're going to push back on that. But I, I I also want to sort of push back on the idea that what platforms do uh, is more transparent because while you're right that we certainly see posts that are left up when platforms make that decision, we definitely don't necessarily see what platforms are taking down. Um, And in fact, this is a massive problem in particular in conflict situations where platforms might be deleting a vast amount of human rights evidence. And in fact, they have done this in a number of situations. Syria is the big example where YouTube just sort of nuked uh, tens of thousands of videos that were evidence of human rights abuses. And we don't see any of that. A lot of it happens as a prior restraint um, before it gets uploaded. And we don't even really have knowledge of what lists platforms rely on. So Quinta was sort of outlining before how we sort of vaguely can unpack what platforms do and that they sort of somewhat map onto government lists, but certainly not perfectly. And they have internal lists that we don't know about. And this is actually something that the Facebook Oversight Board has highlighted with respect to Facebook, um, that they're pushing Facebook to be a lot more transparent on that. Whereas it seems to me, again, as a simple outsider, that the lists that banks operate on the basis of are pretty clear. They're those published lists and we know um, what the the decisions are that they're making with respect to those lists, even if there's this question of, of fungibility. So curious for your reactions to that barrage of, uh, of sort of contradictory statements. Well, I, you know, I, I, I fear to say I'm, I'm, I'm still not quite persuaded. Uh, you know, your, your point about the shades of gray and evaluating, you know, the particular speech being engaged, that, that's certainly true, right? Like, you know, it, it is challenging. Like, I think if I were at a social platform, you would say, oh, it's going to be really hard to say, like, is this a legitimate message, something we can support, something we can't, et cetera. But in a way, that is a choice that social media industry has taken on itself by even considering the fact 
that they should tolerate any of the speech as valid, right, for some of these entities. The financial industry's approach is just to say, look, the risk is too great. This is kind of what the regime wants us to do. We're just going to categorically shut it down. And if I'm being completely honest, like I'm not 100% sure what the legal argument is for the platforms that don't just shut it down when we're talking about like just a straight up designated entity that they're confident this is a designated entity and it's using their platform. I think the risk, legal risk averseness of it is that they should shut it down. Maybe now that that the Taliban may be a government or seen as a government doing certain governmental things, although again, that's true of Hezbollah, it's true of the Islamic State, it's true of other groups that are in a similar position at a point in the past. We say, well, we got to let them do these things because this is a public service. But you don't hear the financial industry saying, well, we've got to let them give their money to uh, you know their uh, ministry so that they can pay their civil servants so people can still, you know, get their health care and get their other public services in these states. Financial industry has just made a different choice and isn't pushed back on this. Maybe it's, I, I think maybe it's a little different in the social media context because you, there may be an, a stronger empathy element. You, you see more clearly the consequence of what's happening. You're less removed from it. And uh, certainly I think there's a different cultural element in how people think about their role and think about their relationship to some of these activities. But, but I'm not sure that makes it fundamentally different from legal perspective in terms of the challenge, legal challenge being put to these platforms. Um, they're just choosing to do it in a different way. There may be good values reasons for doing that. And but I, you know, I think that ultimately comes down to the degree to which social media values the speech that they facilitate, whereas the how the, compared to how the financial industry values the variety of things that they facilitate. And the financial industry just isn't as invested in that as the social media industry is from my 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 sense. I should say, by the way, like the way that the financial industry tends to get around these things is that they put the burden back on the person wanting to pursue the transaction saying, okay, like if you think this is valid uh, and that we should be able to do this, let's get a legal opinion about it. Or more often, let's go to federal agency and get a license because the federal government, particularly for IEPA-based regimes, although also for FTO regimes, substantially can basically give licenses that say, oh, you can do this thing that would otherwise be prohibited. We agree with it go ahead with it. Um, and there is, again, a whole cottage industry of people trying to get licenses for this purpose to engage with all sorts of groups. So if you are a you know, nonprofit organization that wants to provide assistance in Islamic State territory or in Hezbollah territory, and you are worried about these sorts of licenses, these sorts of restrictions, you can try and go get a license to get that approved. Federal government's record of giving licenses isn't always great, particularly in such circumstances like I just described. It's actually a real problem for humanitarian assistance, a, a gargantuan problem that uh, has real human costs involved. But uh, again, there is that sort of avenue there that you could frankly see you know, the social media industry pursuing too and saying, hey, we're not going to pass these judgments. We're going to go to a license, get a license for from federal agencies and try and get them to give us clear lines about how to do this. And if they don't grant it to us, we're just not going to play along. But instead, they're willing to push the legal envelope a little bit more. And again, I think that's more of a, a cultural difference. As for the transparency point, as to whether banks are doing it's more transparent. I, I, I'm, I'm just not sure that really bears out entirely. Uh, I, I think your point about you know, deleting evidence of humanitarian atrocities is a very real one and is actually one where you're right. I think that's something very different than the social media industry is doing here, but it's not compelled by the legal framework here. There is no reason to think that keeping information that, you know, you've pulled down off the internet, such as a video of people massacring, you know, ethnic or religious minorities in some corner of the world, yeah, there's a good argument to say that if that group wants to put it on the internet and they're sanctioned, you should pull it down or else maybe you're giving them a service that, that might pose sanction problems. 
there's absolutely nothing in the law that says you have to delete this stuff. I've actually said this to social media companies and pointed out this is like a real legal problem for you because there's no reason you actually need to dispose of this evidence under these regimes. You're not doing a service that these organizations want. If anything, you are preserving evidence that may ultimately be useful to governments in prosecuting them later. And I wholeheartedly support them doing so. But that particular challenge isn't something that they've arrived at in response to these sanctions laws. They've arrived at it because, frankly, I think for administrative convenience and because they want to wash their hands of these difficult policy-oriented situations as opposed to taking on the responsibility of preserving these things and making them available under appropriate conditions to authorities. So I'm going to, I I can't resist pushing back just a little bit more again. I think it is somewhat administrative convenience, but I think it is also practically perhaps more difficult than your framing might have suggested where, you know, you're saying there's there's no legal obligation at all to host any of these sanctioned groups speech, um, but there's also no legal obligation to take down content like human rights material. And why don't they just sort of do one and not do the other? And I think um, especially in like rapidly evolving situations where they're having to rely on automated tools, perhaps the distinctions aren't quite so easy. And so the question that we actually have to ask of platforms is which side of the line do we want them to err on in those rapidly developing situations? Do we want them to err on the side of leaving more speech up, even if that results in sort of more propaganda or violating content being left up? Or do we want them to err on the side of taking more speech down, even if that means they're taking down some of this really valuable content? Um, Because, you know, perfect content moderation isn't actually possible. And so, you know, we're in that world where we're calculating error costs. And I think, I think actually probably the, the way that platforms have operated is to generally take a very, very broad view of their legal obligations here. Like you were sort of saying earlier, when you're in the position of general counsel, of like, why expose yourself to risk? But, you know, this is perhaps where someone like me comes at it from a different perspective, where, you know, it's not clear here who is going to be standing up for free speech, like who has the right incentives to protect valuable speech. Because for platforms, apart from maybe a minor bad news cycle or or a sort of shoddy article in the New York Times about taking down a little bit of extra speech, it doesn't actually matter to them all too much if a post or two comes down. By and large, you know, they talk about how this content really makes up a very small proportion of what they host, which is mostly, you know, puppy pictures and sourdough recipes. And so, you know, does it worry you at all that there's no incentives here for someone, for, for platforms or anyone in particular to push back against that risk averse position in a way that maybe maybe doesn't operate quite so much? There's not, not that valuable role or there isn't that sort of civil liberties question as much in other contexts. You know, again, I, well, I think I, maybe this is the distinction I, I, I should get out there, you know. At no point would I ever argue that there are not huge, massive negative externalities of the sanctioned system and the way it's applied in other contexts. There, there absolutely are. It comes at a huge humanitarian cost to a lot of people, uh, whether you know civil liberties or whatever values we may have, right? It's less the civil liberties front, but it's other, I think, equally important social values. Uh, the humanitarian assistance delivery vehicle is, is like the number one best example in my mind. You know, we slap these sanctions on countries or on terrorist groups that control territory where innocent civilians live. And when you put sanctions on them, humanitarian workers can't go 
deliver assistance to those people because they're worried that if they get taxed by local authorities or if they get uh, have to give a bribe to a local authority or even by simply you know spending money in the local economy, they are going to run afoul of these sanctions regimes. And a lot of them won't do it. So that's a really serious human cost. And I think that's a, a very real externality there that you know you could see in a hypothetical universe the financial industry caring more about and pushing back on to say, well, we really need to facilitate and allow for these particular types of transfers. In fact, that is actually what the humanitarian assistance industry, it's not really an industry, but you know, humanitarian assistance organizations really do. They really lobby hard, I think for very good reason, to say, hey, governments, you really need to structure your sanctions more narrowly and to give us more exceptions and to give us more nuance and more subtlety so that we can do our jobs that we all agree are really important and help people. The only difference I really see, again, is that the social media organizations seem to be playing a little bit of that role as well. Unlike the financial industry, which says, nope, we're washing our hands of it. This isn't our role. They have a different vision of their social responsibility. They have a different cultural view about the role that they play. And so that leads them to sort of different outcomes. I totally agree with that. I mean, like, as I've noted, I, obviously there's really different ways the, the social media industry and platforms really view their role in the services that they deliver as having a much more of a double bottom line public interest perspective than perhaps the financial industry does. But I just don't think it fundamentally means that it's actually facing different problems. They are just choosing to act on a different set of priorities and values um, than the financial industry does, and a lot of other industries affected by the sanctions regimes are. So, you know, that's what I think the fundamental difference is. I think you could see platforms adopt a much more financial industry perspective, which would be just a lot more cutting this stuff off, consequences be damned. Uh, and the same way you could see the financial industry take a much more nuanced perspective, pushing back and saying, no, in fact, we need to facilitate more of these transfers that if we weren't to do them would have real humanitarian costs. But they're just taking different perspectives about their social responsibility as industries, those perspectives aren't compelled by the law and the problems they're facing. They're compelled by the broader cultural context in which those industries are operating. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and speaking of uh, social and cultural context, I did note that the Taliban has complained about uh, how, you know, they're having difficulty posting on Facebook. And that seems to have garnered it some strange allies, I would say. I saw Donald Trump Jr. tweeted approvingly about the Taliban's complaint that Facebook was censoring it. I'm curious what you make of that overlap uh, between the American right and the Taliban. Obviously, not two groups you would usually think of as having a lot in in common. Do you think this comes up more just because sort of as we've dis been discussing, social media has become so much more of a, a presence in the culture wars? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the only way you can kind of ascribe it in assuming for itself a more substantive judgment in serving in, in a more regulatory role, I suppose, in making these subject matter judgments about who has access and who doesn't along substantive criteria that are informed by and kind of inspired by maybe public law standards, but are still mostly like kind of internally generated or substantially internally generated. Like, you know, they are assuming a making value judgments that people are going to criticize. And, and sometimes people on the wrong side of those value judgments will make weird alliances. I think there's something admirable about that. 
that sort of approach and and thinking about the broader social responsibility industry that that these companies are doing, even though it really does complicate things for them in certain ways, uh, particularly legally. But it's you know it does lead to these same bedfellows, and it, it does make you much more prone to be the subject of this sort of controversy. I will note, I, I think that that's actually something that a lot of companies and private sector organizations really desperately try and avoid, which is why they don't put themselves into the position to make those sorts of judgments when they're provided an out, which the sanctions regime kind of does in a lot of cases. And so, you know, it is, I think, indicative of the very different, what I'm calling a cultural approach to these sorts of things within the industry that that they've kind of found found this way into this role um, because they're willing to take on that risk a little bit more, at least so far, or who knows if that, that'll continue in the future, than a lot of other private industries that seem to be. I do like the idea of the financial industry just looking at the platforms engaging in this and saying to themselves, like, what the hell are you doing? Don't you know this is exactly what you don't want to be involved in? But I do think it's interesting to end on the nuance a little bit. And what I mean by that is that we've been talking about sort of platforms writ large, but of course, there are huge differences between how Zoom ver- works versus how WhatsApp works versus, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Venmo, the Taliban's own websites. And as we go forward here, I think uh, we may see cultural changes, but we may also see legal changes in how these companies are are regulated and think about their role in their interactions with groups like the Taliban. So as we start thinking about this and going back to your point about the sort of human cost of these kinds of regulations, are there other factors that you think lawmakers should be considering and sort of making these kinds of sanctions more of a, a scalpel and less of a sledgehammer? Or is it inherent in the nature of this legal architecture that it's just always going to be a blunt instrument? Well, that that actually is a great question, and it really gets to what I think is one of the more valid criticisms of U.S. sanctions policy as the way it's generally administered, particularly in the counterterrorism context. A little also true of other contexts, but but somewhat somewhat less so, which is that there is just a very strong bureaucratic resistance to the tool that allows for much more fine grain and nuanced judgments, and that is the licensing tool. This is something that Congress has for a reason built into both the FTO regime and the SDGT regime and almost every other, I think every other sanctions regime that that the IEPA authority and other statutory authorities are used to establish. There's almost always some vehicle that says, we understand there are going to be outlier cases where we need some sort of transaction to happen uh, or we favor some transaction happening that would otherwise be prohibited. And we're going to give the federal government a tool by which they can give credible assurances to the private sector actors involved that you will not face penalties for doing it. And that's this writ to do it, a license. License is kind of really hard to get in a lot of these contexts. It varies regime to regime. It varies the types of issue you're doing. But you know, you could have a much more nuanced, carefully structured regimes that would allow for a lot more of legitimate activities we want to take place, take place, and illegitimate activities we don't want to take place get blocked with the use of these licenses. But they are administratively burdensome to craft and pursue. There's not necessarily a bureaucratic actor who is inherently involved in advocating for them or pushing for them or trying to say, let's actually get a little more shades of gray in our policy here to accommodate other other interests other than just cracking down on terrorism or whatever it may be. 
and they are uh, there's just a strong resistance to taking on the risk of issuing the license because often there's this idea that well licenses will get stretched and fudged and will end up causing problematic activity to happen anyway so there is something there there's something to be said that the executive branch should be doing a better job administering these licenses and making them a more realistic policy tool that different industries can use. And that if the executive branch won't, or it feels like it can't, then Congress should step in and make that more of a reality. Because that really is the existing vehicle through which you could resolve a lot of these problems, whether for the social media industry or the financial industry or elsewhere. But in the current status quo, it's it's something that in a lot of contexts, at least particularly in the counterterrorism context, isn't used very broadly. And that that instead is is causing these these much larger problems that that don't necessarily have to exist that you could avoid with a little bit more nuance. Is there anything else that you think we should have asked you about? There is one angle of this that we did not touch on that I I maybe should elaborate. So the one aspect of the sanctions regime that that needs to be born in mind as well, particularly as it relates to social media, is that there are often carve-outs for certain types of speech activity and medium media related to speech activity. And it's possible that some of these social media companies, particularly those that are willing to push back a little bit more on sanctions restrictions or more willing to entertain messages that seem legitimate by entities that with, with ties to sanctioned entities, maybe viewing themselves as fitting within. And so from that perspective, you could see the social media industry maybe having a little bit more leeway for a lot of what it does compared to the financial industry that the vast majority of transactions, there's no reason to think they have anything to do with those sorts of First Amendment or media-related activities, uh, whereas that is the entirety, or at least a substantial portion of what social media companies do. I think that's a really good place to leave it. And I just wanted to say thanks, Scott, for the good humored uh, sparring about all of this. Even if we didn't convince each other, I think it was a really sort of generative and interesting conversation about the nuances of these conversations that don't generally get sort of put in juxtaposition with each other. And I think it's a really interesting comparison. So um, we may have to have you on again to continue the debate as this keeps coming up in basically every geopolitical crisis as we go forward. So thanks very much. Yeah, my pleasure. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.